0: I'm Bryn Lucas and welcome to It's All About Me and this week's me is commentator extraordinaire David Addison. So David, you're my first guest on the podcast. Thank you for agreeing to be a part of
1: it pleasure i feel like i'm being thrown in at the deep end here if i'm the first one
0: yeah you really are you
1: really i have no <laughs> idea
0: what's going to happen but that's part of the fun now some people may not know who you are by name but they will definitely know your voice
1: the first winner of the 2019 QuickFit british touring car championship season is josh cook for btc racing who comes across the line to win another belting race by 2.7 seconds in the end from jake and he really did get stuck in the traffic
0: that's taken from the British Touring Car Championship where you're the
1: commentator but how do you describe yourself? Um I'm a motor racing fan who's been able to earn a proportion of their living for the last 20 years out of um their hobby really. I never got into motorsport to be a TV star. Um it was only as a as a as a hobby. Um I started doing track commentaries back in 1991 and then the following year that led to doing highlights of television programs Uh, but the lack of ambition that I had to begin with was really that I used to go and watch racing at Alton Park the Cheshire circuit which is just down the road from me and we used to go and watch at Nickerbrook the corner at the back part of the circuit and at Alton like certain other circuits of the time there were two commentary positions one at the start line one at Nickerbrook and I'd worked out that if you were in that commentary box at Nickerbrook you had a better view than I had uh, you were drier than I was, because normally it rained. It seemed to normally rain. Um, and you got in for free. And I thought, that's probably the place to watch from. So that was about the extent of my ambition when I wanted to be a commentator. It really was to, to go and do the second box at Alton Park, which in my life I've probably done no more than 20 times, really.
0: Yeah, which is the irony of it all, really, yeah, isn't it? Me. That once you start doing the TV, you're stuck in, a, in another room. You can see a bit of the track, but somewhere like Alton Park, you can't
1: really see a huge amount of the circuit from the commentary position you're in. No that's right but equally once you start doing television uh, you get told very quickly look at the pictures because that's what everyone at home is seeing there's no point me talking about the battle for tenth if everybody else is looking at the battle for the lead because they think what's this bloke on about he's rubbish you know. You do occasionally need to look out of the window just to gauge what else is going on but really yes you've got to focus on the pictures.
0: So tell me a bit about you then. I did a bit of research and and I worked out that you're a certain age. A certain Mm. age that, I I don't Mm. know if you want to reveal your certain age, but you can if you want.
1: Pause. No, I'm 48 now.
0: So if you started this when you are 18, 19 years Mm. old, that's quite a long time to be in this
1: profession, really. But how did it all begin? There are lots of little elements that all go to sort of funnel into the story, in a sense. There was no real motor racing interest in my family. My father and my mum had been to Alton Park uh, in their youth because it was something to do. My father was a Manchester United fan, so his Saturdays were spent watching at Old Trafford. Uh, and when I was 11, he bought me a season ticket in the hope that there'd be that dad and lad afternoon out. It wasn't for me. You know, I wanted to go to Alton Park again. So my mum, bless her, used to be the one that took me.
0: Oh, good old
1: mum. So what did your parents do for a living? Uh, my father was by trade a teacher, uh, and then he went into industry and worked for a big company, or it was in the 70s and 80s called Ferranti Computer Systems, and he rose to to being a, a senior person within that company. My mum was one of a number of people responsible for um, looking after school meals. So all the schools in Manchester were broken up into different areas, and she had an area which could be 50 or so schools, and was responsible for menus and nutrition and, and staffing and things like that. So you know completely away from from motorsport so what was your upbringing's meal time like was it a, a nice meal time or was it horrendous <laughs> oh, was it semolina for pudding <laughs> it was largely my mum and i because my father would work late and then he'd get home late with a sandwich um but it was always uh, you would always sit at the dinner table it was a proper knife and fork um, meal, and uh, and then at weekends, yes, my father would be there when he got back from Old Trafford, and we would eat as a family, and it was yes, good, wholesome, nutritious food. Yes, absolutely.
0: <laughs> were they fairly relaxed parents? Was it quite a strict upbringing?
1: Um, it was rela- a bit of both, really, I think. I mean, they, like all parents, they wanted the best for me, and they would come down on me like a ton of bricks if school reports were bad, or if homework wasn't being done, or if they... Uh, felt i was spending too much time in front of the television um but yeah they indulged me enough i suppose to to make me fairly rounded
0: so what about siblings then any brothers and sisters I come
1: from a long line of only children. My dad was an only child. My mum was an only child. Uh, my little girl's an only one. So um, the dynasty's going to die out fairly soon, I fear. So, no, it was, it, was, it was just me. So um, I didn't really have that many playmates. And I went to school in Bolton, which was about, well, I don't know, 20, 25 minutes bus ride away. Um, so there were one or two of my school classmates around where I lived, but not um, in that stereotypical way that you walk out of the front door and you know, your whole class is in your street. There's nothing like that.
0: So you've said that your mum used to take you to races, but any other people you used to go with? And
1: how did you get into commentary from that point? When I was at school, I got friendly with a guy whose father had raced, uh, stopped, built up his business, and ultimately went back to racing. And I used to tag along with them. The commentary interest started probably when I was about 12, I think. And it was the British Grand Prix. It was a Brands Hatch Friday, free practice, and Johnny Cicotto had gone off at Westfield. Red flag, he did lots of injuries to his legs. And um, Brian Jones, who was the circuit commentator, was having to fill, because this was long before you had circuit radio to bail you out. And I was probably one of those really annoying children that you come across that thought he knew everything and kept chipping in or heckling or correcting. And my father, probably as a shut up type of line, said, oh, you know, you could do this. And I thought, yeah, I wouldn't mind. And that was the seed of of really wanting to do it.
0: And so if you were a big motorsport fan, I mean, you got hooked very early on. I think it's quite often the case when you talk to commentators, they can remember the exact moment they got hooked on the sport. They can remember the track, the meeting, what happened, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But they can also remember the events around it, how they got there. And it's interesting that if your dad didn't have an interest in motorsport, You still managed to find your way in.
1: There are always connections, aren't there? So October 1977, last meeting of the year at Alton Park was the first one we went to. And I do remember it for reasons I'll get to in a moment. But um, like all little boys, of course, I had some toy cars, which I would push around the floor. And a friend of my grandmother's, her daughter and son-in-law, marshalled at Alton Park. And although the lady is widowed, she still goes. She's still the chief marshal at Alton Park for the northwest centres of the clubs. And this lady said to my granny, um, if ever David wants to go, I'm sure they can get him some tickets. And so we did. And it was, in a sense, that sort of kill or cure thing. This will either make you really interested or he will hate it so much you won't want to go again. And I do have a recollection of walking over the old, what would it have been in those days? Eagle Star footbridge um, at Deer Leap, you know, just behind the grid at Alton Park as a field of um, modified sports cars set off at the start of the race, which was incredibly noisy, and I didn't like the noise, and I cried, which my mum never lets me forget. But having got home from there, it all went quiet. Apparently, this is how the parents tell the story. It we all went quiet for a few days, and they thought, good, we've got that out of his system, good. And then one afternoon, my mum was horrified to find that not only were all the cars back out in the front room, they'd been lined up in a 3 grid formation. And the reason that she couldn't find all the placemats for the dining table were that they were now being used as curbs to drive around to sort of roughly lay out Alton Park in the front room. At which point they thought, oh, Lord, we've got a problem here. And um, from 1978 onwards, I wanted to go as often as I could. And, and the interest just grew and grew and grew. And there's contact of Van Tour, around. Dries Van Tor, a corner or two from home, spins, loses a place to Hesemans, loses a place to Englehart. That's going to put him in. Eight.
0: Presumably when you were playing toy cars, you used to crash them, right? Did you have a special way of, of
1: enacting a crash? Well, I don't know. It probably got more precise as I watched more crashes, really. Also, as I learned a bit more about the sport, I realized that if you got your Lego cars and space things, you could peel the tires off and you could make your own tire wall. So you could then have a little tire barrier for them to crash into and things like that. Um, I don't think we had that many crashes because, of course, it damaged the car. But yeah um i I think as i as i understood a bit more about it cars would quite often clip a curb and either roll because the placemats the dining table placemats were quite high um or or they get a bit of understeer and slide off into my now self-made tyre barriers that i'd created around um, whichever room i was in (laughs) and you'd be commentating at the same time right and doing car sound effects so it was a bit of half and half really um but which was in a sense, how it was at a race circuit, because you'd hear the commentary, then the cars would go past, you wouldn't hear the commentary. And then as the cars disappeared, you'd hear the voice over the PA again. So to me, that was entirely how it happened. It's commentary beatbox, isn't it? (laughs) It is a bit. (laughs)
0: That's what you're doing. When I was younger, I used to play uh, toy cars with my older brother. And we used to play down the garden. And we had loads of matchbox cars and things like that we used to have crashes quite regularly you know police chases and things like this and we had a a brick and we put the car on a brick and get another brick and smack the car to pieces with a brick so it was all (laughs) dented you know it was it was an expensive thing to do but we didn't seem to mind there are always more cars apparently
1: which is true and then you'd have a toy car which you play with for a season and it would be whichever driver and then of course the following year either they would change cars or that car would change livery what do you do then so then i got not very good at, but I did have a go at repainting some of these Corgi models, which has absolutely killed the value of them because they're either covered in Dorby paint or Tipex or Lord knows what, um, rather than being the originals and my father kept saying no you don't want to do that No, oh would have to walk away as so he could see a collector's car dwindling value yeah. throwing his
0: hands in the air thinking he <laughs> should have been into a football it's, his, it's your dad's fault for picking man you that's all we can say
1: right <laughs> if i have any football connection or football leaning it is towards manchester united he did leave that mark in me
0: what were you like sporting wise then were you quite a sporty kid
1: hopeless Utterly hopeless, wasn't interested. Uh wasn't very good, wasn't interested. And the school I went to was Bolton School, which is where chess champion Nigel Short came from. And Mark Radcliffe was a pupil there years ahead of me. I think John Colshaw went there as well and lots of other people that probably made a far better life than I did. But it was a school that always seemed to me that was really good if you were really good. And if you were average, and I was average at most things, it didn't really look after you. You were you were encouraged if you were good, but you weren't encouraged so much if you were a bit average. So yeah you you had to play football and there was a, a chance to play rugby um cross country running which I hated which is odd because now I go running quite a lot but at the time I hated it and I wish I'd picked up on that earlier. Um tennis I quite enjoyed playing as a sport uh, but I wasn't very good but I quite
0: enjoyed it. <laughs> so not a sporty type then but what about education what about
1: qualifications my year was the first one to do GCSEs and I left at the end of that rather than do sixth form there and I went to a sixth form college um and probably didn't work very hard because it was a lot freer than than a, a boys school had been but it, it, it taught me a bit more about life i think and then from that i went off and did a, a an hnd in business management and then a, a degree course in business enterprise so you know none of which is anything to do with motorsport and broadcasting but it ticked all the little boxes so you've got a levels and you've got a degree and then right you're ready for the real world now
0: yeah, so did you have an idea of a, of a different career path and just fell into this one? I mean, you said this was a hobby that became a career, so you're, presumably you were
1: thinking that this was never gonna happen. Yeah, I, well, it, I, it wasn't so much not gonna happen, it's just that it, it, it didn't seem to be a career. Um, I wanted to go and have a, a well-paid day job and then go and indulge myself doing trap commentary at the weekends. And you have to put this in the context of the time, which was there was no point thinking about being a TV commentator because there was only the BBC where I started, really. Um, And and that was certainly well catered for, um, because that voice that you heard was doing pretty much every event, eat cars and bikes. So there was no ambition to do television at all. So I thought, well, if I go off and and work in marketing, which is what I wanted to do and public relations, then um, I can go and indulge my hobby at the weekend. So my first proper job was as the press officer for the Manchester Chamber of Commerce. Um, And then I said that was was handling media relations and editing their, their newspaper which is quite an exciting time actually to to be involved because while I was there, we had the Manchester bomb and there was a huge amount of media interest in Manchester and they came to to the chamber of commerce for contacts and for statements and things. And although I wasn't that person to give them, it was interesting to deal with the media and and, uh, liaise with, with people within the chamber to get the right spokesperson. And then we had a, a, impromptu visit um a few days after this by the president of ireland so um as it happened i wasn't commentating that weekend but i had to give it up anyway because going to the office because that saturday uh, mary robinson the president of ireland came over to show support for manchester uh, i left there to go off and work for uh, a a government-funded training and enterprise council and business link in bolton uh, having been to school there i went back to bolton to work there for 12 months or so, but really miss Manchester. So I left that job, went to work for a PR firm in the city centre, did that for 12 months. And then a friend of mine and I started on our own doing a bit of motorsport PR, business-to-business PR. And over time it all gravitated towards motor racing work, less PR, more publishing work, and, and more and more commentating. As they come through turn one, then it's Ben Barnekote in the lead of the race, Christian Clean goes second and third, Mikhail Oliocin in the Ferrari. As the world has changed with more and more satellite TV channels and then uh, the internet with live streaming. Not by design at all, but really organically has grown so that now there's, there's far more commentating than uh, written work.
0: It's interesting, isn't it, how your choices you made when you were younger still have come back to help you in mm. this stage of, of, of life as well. I and mean, the career that you've chosen, the career that you've fallen into, it's a strange one. I don't really believe that people are in this job that, That i do that that you do better (laughs) that you do um by by chance this is something that you know you
1: create your own opportunities a lot of the time you're right and and a lot of it is right place right time um people ask me i want to become a commentator what do i do and it's a very hard one to answer you can write 100 letters to people never get a reply but you could just be in the right place at the right time
0: So back to, to 1991, 1990, 1991, yep. when you started uh, going to circuits and, and sitting in the booth in the box mm. with a mic. Mm. What did your parents make of that then?
1: Um, by that stage, I could drive myself. So I don't think they came to a race meeting uh, to, to listen and, until about the third or fourth. Um, and my mum was very much my mum and was oh that was excellent and well done and terribly proud and of course my father picked holes in it and said well you did that and you spoke too quickly and you didn't do this and I told you not to do that but I think was quite proud in a sense Um, and then you know they they came to two or three other events and after a while I think it was my mum that said we we don't hear you we just hear the commentator we just got used to it really and I suppose that was a compliment because it meant that if you like they were comfortable listening to it i wasn't about to do anything crass and they just accepted it but um then when i started doing television things that that was another conversation altogether because that was quite different to hear me coming out of the tv rather than just over a, a tunnel at a circuit just hangs on. going back what now six seven or so years maybe more I had done um, one of these very first Motors TV live race days from Mallory Park for for Richard Hay at Hay Fisher. It was a club race meeting. And that was really the first time that Richard had worked with me doing live TV. And I was coming back from Le Mans uh, a month later. The phone rang and it was Richard. He said, what are you doing this weekend? Go to Castle Coombe. Do you want to go to Harama for Super League, which was that football-themed series? And I said, well, I'll go to Castle Coombe. He said, no, you really ought to go to Harama. It'll be good for you. Okay, well, it's a week's notice. They're clearly desperate. Anyway, I wriggled out of going to Castle Coombe. And I went and did this Super League thing at Harama. While I was there, I was approached by the head of TV from SRO because SRO's GT3 championship was the other category that was racing. So there was, it was maybe Super League, but you had what was then called FIA GT3 European Championship there as well. Mike Scott, who's the head of TV, um, didn't know me from Adam. Um, although I'd done SRO events as a track commentator and done some PR work for SRO, he had no idea who I was. That's fair enough. And he said, look, um, we've got our two races here. Uh, Would you mind commentating on? Not a problem. Love GT racing. I was probably happier doing that in the Super League. Where's this story going? So at the end of that, he said, okay, um, next month, we've got Spa 24 hours. And in those days, the GT1 world championship. Are you free? As it happened, I was going to be the English PA commentator. And I said, well, I've been booked by another part of, of SRO. If you can move me from one area to yours, then absolutely fine, which then happened. So I did the TV commentary on the Spa 24 Hours, and it was me and Johnny Herbert who, who was doing some of the GT1 commentary for Mike that year. During the course of that race, um, which was a non-championship Spa 24 Hours, and during the night, Stefan Rattel walked into the media centre, said to the press, isn't this a great race? And they all said yes, and Stefan went away again. On the back of that block pan endurance series was created for gt3 and initially gt4 cars and sro said well you know you were there at the beginning of this in a sense for the for the trial race do you want to come and do the whole series bloody oath i do so that was that was my main introduction into doing live tv partly by being in the right place at the right time um years before i'd, I'd gone to australia and um met people over there a guy called aaron noonan journalist good friend said we really ought to get you to bathurst for the for the thousand k's one year and in 08 there was a a, a stronger international lineup that made it a, a a better sell if you like for why we should have this this pom over and i just happened to meet a guy called tony cochran who was then the man in charge of the v8 championship he'd been listening and said how do you know so much about our racing you know you're not bad for a pom and i said it's because i'm a sad anorak and i'm interested to the end of the night this was a friday evening he said um, come and see me uh, on on sunday okay so that's race day cannot find this bloke for love no money ask the pr man yeah i don't know where he is quite dismissive okay fine so i wonder what that's all about get to the end of the race and tony comes to the winner's press conference so i go and see him i said uh, did, you, did you want to talk to me about something yeah 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 come to my suite in half an hour so i go and i'm given a kind of um forex or something horrible to drink and um tony said right i really like what you've done this weekend we've got a round in november in bahrain the v8 main commentator in those days uh, on channel seven was a guy called matt white who was commentator sports presenter and was then the, the main presenter for a show called i think it was today tonight which is a bit like our six o'clock news it's a big ratings thing for channel seven so for an aussie to go to bahrain for a three-day race weekend plus travel would mean he'd be away from that ratings winner for the best part of a week Channel seven wasn't very keen on letting him go. Tony said, I want you to go and do it. He squared it with Channel Seven. I went off and did this with with Neil Crompton and it was really being thrown in at the deep end because it was a championship I knew from afar and people I'd never worked with before and lots of other things. I'm a Tom doing an Australian championship for an Australian network. How does this come about? You couldn't make it up, but it was a hell of an experience. What are you like as a racing driver? I only ever did two races as a driver, and I can't say I was a racing driver, I drove in a race, I wasn't a racing driver, and I was hopeless. I did two races at the end of 2000 in a Mini 7, it was a one litre Mini. The only good thing about it was that a man called Dave Braggins, who owned the car, who who had been a multiple Mini 7 champion, finally was able to show to people that the car wasn't hooky, it was that he was a good driver, because if it was hooky, this bloke would have done a lot better than, than he had done. Um, I wasn't brave enough, I wasn't quick enough, and it just wasn't for me. But it's nice of you to show that his car was actually, you know... I, 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 I sacrificed myself just just yeah. for him, you see. Uh, case in point, I'll show you how bad I was. My now wife, I'd only met about three or four weeks before that race, and we were still courting, and I went to her flat in Hitchin, and uh, this is after the, the race, and I'd got the onboard camera from Hay Fisher. So I said, oh, look, I've got the onboard. Great she said in a voice laden with doom. She said, right, put it on, going back to the VHS tape days, I'll make a cup of tea. Right. So they switched the onboard camera on. Now, you know Silverstone National Circuit, you've got the assembly area just near the BRDC building, You go out onto the circuit, onto the grid, winter meeting November, so you don't don't sit on the grid for long, straight uh, onto the green flag lap and back. By the time the kettle had brewed, um, we were on lap three, and my wife walked in and she looked at the pictures and said, oh, is this still the green flag lap? Now, if I'm going that slowly, on lap three i am clearly no racing driver i do have this little itch to have another go i've done a track day or two and in the back of my mind when i become an old so-and-so or an even older so-and-so and my little girl is of an age is to go and buy a sort of classic sports car like a i don't know if i can afford it and a lotus elan or an mgb or something and do a two driver thing just to see if i was really as bad as i was it is a lot easier to talk about people doing it than do it. And I didn't realize how quick you had to be, even to be last, you still have to be quick. But it did prove I'm no racing driver.
0: But of course, if you go down that route when you're a little bit older as well, you have the excuse of age. you say, well, my, it's my
1: eyesight or it's the fact that I'm not as quick as I used to be. Exactly, yes. And probably extra weight I can argue with as that I've had a good <laughs> life and uh, yes. Yeah, all the excuses I shall write down, that's right.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, you have gotta get the excuses in early and I'm pretty sure, pretty sure you've heard them all. So how did you meet
1: your wife? Blind date, and again, small world department. What I didn't realise at the time was that she had a motor racing connection. So she's from Cheshire originally, moved to Hitchin with her family for her father's work, made friends with a girl who moved up to Chester, who made friends with a friend of mine, they shared a house. I've been single for ages, these two got talking and said, what David needs is a woman. Yeah, somebody like Dawn, who had been to Le Mans that year. Ah, light bulb moment. So they made this arrangement, blind date, that neither of us knew about. And over the course of the evening, my wife asked about motor racing and did I know so-and-so? And I said, yes. Um, and she said, yeah, my father knows this person. Um, he's, at the time, the Formula 3 championship scrutineer. Well, i would known him by sight and to say hello to and, and, uh, and his wife for, for many years. Um, so there was this motor racing connection. But even the mutual friends didn't really know that I would have known Dawn's in-laws. In those days, she lived in Hitchin, as I say, and there was a company called Collectors Car Books based in Woburn. So I went one weekend out of season, and um, as you do when you're courting, you go and buy flowers. And I went to Woburn to buy flowers and go to Collectors Car Books. And at the back of this little shop was um, a box of old race programmes. Now I'm an inveterate programme collector and filler inner. Um, most of them are originals. Some have had to replace over the years. And one that I've replaced was that 1977 very first meeting, October Alton Park, that we spoke about earlier. So it was 30p in 1977. It was a pound in the year 2000 from this bookshop. Fantastic. It was mint condition. So I got to Dawn's flat and I said, oh, you know, I bought this, I was really excited about it. Oh, she said, let me have a quick look. Let me see if I recognize any of the names because she would have gone to race meetings with her parents. So we flicked through list of officials you know it's still there now in race programs chief scrutineer that day was her father she'd have been the same age as me she'd have been at the circuit because um her father scrutineered mum was an assistant uh, dawn her sister and her brother would have been parceled into the car and off they'd have gone so it is quite possible that as five-year-olds we walked past each other and, and our eyes may have met across a crowded paddock so
0: romantic <laughs> so weird isn't it so you have a daughter yourself now how old is she
1: she was eight last week going on 18 yeah. <laughs> a bit of a handful in many ways got lots of me in her she likes words and she's she's very good at english and she's uh, got lots of strong personality traits from both me and from her mum so um yeah she's going to be a real force to be reckoned with i reckon is she gonna be a commentator a racing driver or none of the above she quite likes the thought of doing something in broadcasting she she does like walking into my office when microphones are around and picking them up um from the moment she was born she's always been incredibly nosy always asking questions always wants to know things so i'm not necessarily sure i would point her in in a a motorsport role in anything other than the media but um yeah i could see her being a presenter or a, a, a journalist yes i think she's inquisitive enough to do that you've been involved with the British Touring Car now what since
0: 2013 2013 for ITV yeah Yeah.
1: yes Um, I've done um, years on and off of doing the circuit commentary either at two or three meetings a year or, or more but yeah for ITV 2013 onwards yeah how did your life change when that that gig came about or did it not it gave me a greater profile and it put into context without trying to sound arrogant or Sood's cornerish about this, it put into context what I'd done for the previous 20-odd years of doing highlights on Eurosport or Motors or Sky or wherever they might have been. My next-door neighbour said to me, you're on TV now, are you? Because he'd watched the BTCC one afternoon. He's not a motor racing fan at all. He likes sports. So if rugby's on, he'll watch that. Touring cars are on, he'll watch that. And I said, yes, that's right. And I didn't have the heart to say, I've been doing it for 20-odd years because... The answer then would be well i've never seen it and that's a bit deflating for your ego as much as anything it certainly gave me a greater profile and um quite a lot of people were quite pleased for me as in yes you know you've done your knowledge as it were by all these years of track commentary uh, it exposed me to a greater audience certainly british touring car championships back in business new cars new teams new drivers new combinations within teams and tim harvey is going to be another great season Now, there are certain
0: commentators that you recognise their voice before you recognise what they look like. I'm just thinking of people that have walked into a room that I've not seen but I've heard turn round and the voice hasn't really matched the impression I have of what they look like, if that makes any kind of sense. Have you had that happen to you, where someone's recognised your voice before they've recognised you?
1: Yes, once or twice. And uh, people say, oh, gosh, you're not what I expected. Um, I don't know what they do expect. We went to a, a little car spares shop um, a few months ago. My daughter and I walked in and I was talking to my little girl as I closed the door behind me, which meant that I was talking as the guy behind the counter walked out and heard this voice. And as I turned around, he recognized me because he watched touring cars um, and. That was quite nice, partly for my ego and partly for my little girl who was telling everybody at school the following week um, that that she'd uh, gone to this shop and there was this person that recognised Daddy from the TV. Oh, I see. So some cool dad points there. Now,
0: I don't think anyone goes into our profession to say that they don't like the recognition. It's nice when you get a bit of it, isn't it?
1: It is. It, It is. It makes you feel important. It makes you feel appreciated. I get to sign maybe on average one autograph a touring car weekend so I'm, I'm by no means famous. What it must be like to be an absolute teenage pop star idol and, and, and have that kind of adulation, I've no idea. But it is nice when occasionally people stop you and say, you know, we like what you're doing. It, so yes, it is nice to be appreciated, at least let's say that. So the moral is if you go to a British touring car meeting and you
0: happen upon David Addison, don't be afraid, go up to him and say hello, <laughs> thrust a pen at him and he'd be more than happy to sign an autograph. But if you don't like what David Addison does, then
1: yeah, keep walking, yeah.
0: (laughs) Fair enough, that sounds like a good compromise.
1: (laughs) He knows how to play to the gallery, doesn't he? So uh, he did this a few years ago when he was ensnared behind Camaro's that couldn't get out of the way. There's a gap on the inside, it's definitely mini-shaped. Dexette, it closes.
0: So how do you go about finding your own style? Because I think there's a tendency sometimes for commentators to want to sound like commentators right mm. so they, they mm. think yeah, okay really. i grew up watching murray walker or i grew up watching anyone really You can pick mm. a name mm. pick a name and uh and that's how they do it so therefore i need to sound exactly like that so it's quite tricky for you to find your own style and your own voice in a world that's certainly been sculpted by people over the
1: years There's probably if you analyze how i do it lots of bits of other people in me i'm not sure there's a real me but there are a hybrid of lots and lots of other people there are uh, over the years, lots of commentators, whether they've been television or circuit commentators that I've probably taken bits from. So um, people like Robin Bradford and Ian Titchmarsh are great circuit commentators. Robin always used to have a slightly jocular style and be able to have a nice turn of phrase. So did Neville Hay. There's probably a bit of those in there. Ian Titchmarsh was a, a great circuit race commentator who produced excitement out of anything. And there's probably lots of Ian in there as well. Um there's possibly a bit of murray walker in there because of growing up watching him and, and and one of the first things i was taught when i did some tv stuff for neville hay was you're not here to show people how much you know you're here to stop people changing channel and if you look at what murray walker did there was a lot of that you know that way that he had of breaking up a sentence got people a bit riled if they were motor racing fans but what it did was stop that that a transient fan from picking up the newspaper or dozing off because suddenly he was jolted back into looking at the screen. Um, and there are occasions where I'll do things like that and, and break up a sentence. Um, for me, one of the best television commentators was a guy called Mike Raymond in Australia. And, and if you go back to the 80s and the 90s, uh, Mike Raymond was the lead caller on the Australian touring car productions. He was also the executive producer. So what Mike was able to do, and I never worked with a guy, so I'm saying this purely as a fan, um, he looked at the big picture of the broadcast. It didn't matter to him whether he looked good. We, we are all uh, guilty of wanting to look clever as commentators. Mike didn't care about that seemingly. What he wanted to do was that the viewer had the best broadcast. So he would do the starts and the finishes and the shouty, screamy bits and give people a nickname, but he'd have two or three people with him who could do all the analysis. And of course he knew what he was talking about, but he'd throw that ball to somebody else to discuss because they might put it across better or they, might not have had any airtime for three minutes. Didn't care. He didn't mind whether he was he was the big shot or not, as long as the viewer got the the right broadcast in the end, the right outcome. Um, and you know, there are occasions where I'll ask a question in touring cars to Tim, and he looks at me as though I've come from the moon. And I had to say to him, "I, I do know the answer to this. I'm just asking you because there might be people at home wanting to know. Um, so you sacrifice yourself a little bit. But you know, it's not about us looking clever. It's about people." enjoying the coverage perhaps learning from it uh, as we go through the day it's also i think asking asking
0: the questions that you think somebody would like to know the answer to and also you don't know when somebody's joining the sport they might be they mm-hmm. might be their first ever race it might be their 150th
1: yeah absolutely so there's an element of not wanting to bore people with the history but also give a bit of history uh, as to why this is relevant and yeah as i say we, we can all get hung up a bit on being anoraks and, and wanting to show off there's a a level, your your touring car fan is probably, and and I'll stand ready to get shot down in flames here, (laughs) but a touring car fan is a touring car fan. They watch touring car race, not everybody, but a large proportion of our BTCC fan base watch the BTCC. And they have their heroes within that. Like an Ivan Muller from years past. When Ivan Muller then goes to the World Touring Car Championship, they get a new hero. They don't move that allegiance to a, a new championship. So they know a lot about the BTCC, but you wouldn't necessarily expect to find them at a GT meeting or a, a, a club race. You know, they are fans of that championship and the people in it. So you're talking to a knowledgeable fan base there. But as you rightly say, they might only have been following it for 10 years, not the 60 plus that the BTCC has been around. So yeah, you you, you in some cases, they're talking to people that are completely new, not motor racing fans. Um, some are touring car fans but they know touring car racing. So if there's a driver that's come from the GT world into touring car racing, they may not know a huge amount about it. And that's where some of that uh, information needs to be offered.
0: And of course, if you then say something that is even slightly wrong, As a commentator (laughs) they'll soon let you know (laughs) they will have you got any examples of that where you said something and someone oh hang on you said 1993 it was 1994 (laughs) you know have you been pulled up by the 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 lapels a few times there are
1: occasions yes i I can't instantly quote an example but there are fans that will say oh you know you you said this i had an email from somebody um after a goodwood event I've done for TV correcting me on using math or maths um, in the context of do the math or do the maths. Um, I think I was trying to take the mickey out of Americans and however I said it this um, chap disagreed with but um, yeah I've I've never had too much of an argument over a fact with anybody so um, I'll I'll hang on to that as as good news I think. I was gonna say yet dot dot (laughs) dot. Yes, (laughs) Yeah, thanks for that.
0: You were there at Donington Park a few years ago when there was awful, awful accident with Billy Munger. Mm. I was there, but I was working for one of the BTCC teams. So I remember yeah. watching the race and being around, and I, and I can picture it, and I can feel it, and I can take myself back to it quite quickly. Um, but for you, these moments are equally as important, um, but for a very, very different reason.
1: Yeah, I mean, I didn't see the accident as it happened I was away doing something else I think we'd had a touring car race before it so I was off doing my homework so it didn't affect me in perhaps the same way that it would have affected Richard Neal who was the f4 commentator um I've done circuit commentary where we've had fatal accidents so I have had to cope with those um yes you're, you're right but again I would say you can't really let your mind dwell on that there's a an element of professionalism an element of the adrenaline kicking in um that takes over from that while you're doing it and it's not fair to to want a big accident but actually you're then making a bit more of an input into the broadcast itself because it's not just a case of describing who's overtaking whom you've then got to pad for 10 minutes 20 minutes you don't know how long it could be an hour at spa one year we had a red flag for an hour in the 24 hour race and to to channel the conversation to find things to talk about to throw to an ad break to throw to an interview to talk to the director and say how about talking to so-and-so is in in a funny way quite rewarding because you're making you feel as though at least you're making more of an input into that overall output rather than just concentrating on the the race coverage so if i think back to spa we had a a red flag it was a guy called marcus Mai who had a huge accident um he, he, he um briefly died at the scene. They were able to get his heart going again. And Marcus made a very, very good recovery and, and, and I speak to him from time to time. He's an inveterate motor racing enthusiast. He watches lots of the coverage, but while he was being airlifted to hospital from his car and so on, we had this red flag for an hour. And um, one of the team's PR people brought me Stefan Ortelli, who is a great GT guy, lots of good stories and we were able to talk about his career and the fact that he won the Spa 24 Hours outright, but in the in those days, second class of car, which was a real surprise back in 2003, um, that sticks in my mind more than the race actually, because you're making more, as I say, more contribution to filling the airtime to to keeping the broadcast going in adversity. So you're right; they're not nice situations, and they affect us all in different ways. But I think when you're doing it, the adrenaline kicks in, and that desire to to keep going make a good job of it uh, rather more than letting your your personal feelings get in the way Um, you can have those when when you put the microphone down but at the time you've focused on on keeping going um, and not dwelling on it you know one of the things you taught at circuit commentary and lots of people that do circuit commentary then become very good TV commentators is that where there's a big accident play it down Um, don't dwell on it don't talk about the damage or the flames or the fact that he's being cut out of the car you say there's been an accident so and so is involved the red flags come out now the car's are going to go back to the grid we'll have a restart and when you've got something to say say it but don't dwell on the fact that there's going to be this long stoppage when a track commentary pa system goes quiet it's a bit eerie people tend to know that's quite a serious situation so you get used to, to filling there but also not dwelling on the accident so perhaps that's something that that um, i've carried over into those tv days <laughs>
0: of all the motorsport that you have commentated on Mm. playing part of the presenting team it's almost an impossible question but can (laughs) you pick your biggest highlights?
1: um adrenaline rush was probably that first itv btcc day um it was a freezing cold browns hatch i was going down with a lurgy and i was conscious that that i mean although the eight supercars in australia had been watched by a big audience this was something i was doing for the rest of the season so i couldn't afford to muck it up and um toby moody who had done it the year before me said um however much you've done when steve Ryder, who we'd grown up watching throws to you and says your name he said the pears on the back of your neck will stand up because it's quite a moment and he was absolutely right so there was that element if you like of him saying my name and throwing to me to start the the race commentary um there was the fact that it was the first time i was doing it and the importance of not getting it wrong that was quite a big adrenaline rush highlights subsequent to that would probably revolve around seeing friends do well um will davison in australia was a, a good mate and i was there when he won bathurst um other teams and drivers scoring a podium or a first win within the Touring Car Championship uh, a special. But because I have a, a long standing relationship, friendship with the Jordans, uh, commentating on Andrew winning the championship uh, with, at the end of 2013, again, which was my first year, was, was quite special. Whenever I used to go and do the circuit commentary at touring cars, Andrew seemed to have an appalling day. So when I had to ring him and Mike, his dad, and say, you've got some bad news, I'm in for the whole season. Oh, Christ, they said, no, we're doomed, we're not going to race. Um, and there was one moment, if you watch the TV coverage back, when Andrew gets out of Park Fair Main, there's all the, the celebrations and the high-fiving, there's this quite moving moment where he and Mike just give each other a long hug. And knowing them, and knowing them of old and what they've been through to get to that point, um, was was my almost lump in throat moment? You know, it it, it hit me um, in a way because there was that realization. So was that a highlight? I don't know if that's the right word, but it was it was a moment I won't forget. Let's put it that way.
0: I think that's I think that counts as a highlight. I think we can go <laughs> with that one. <laughs> so we've got your highs. So what was the yeah. what's the low then? If you could pick one
1: low, you know, I'm not really sure. There's been a really low day. Um, you know, there have been days of bad racing. There have been days with with nasty accidents um but i like motor racing so i'm happy to be there and i would miss it hugely i will miss it hugely when the phone calls stop the emails stop coming asking me to go and do it um so every race meeting has good things in it you know you're watching history being made all the time um i can't really say there's been a a low day but uh, as a motor racing fan I am enjoying every race meeting and everything it gives me. Well, long may it continue. Checkered flag is waved. The Jerry Marshall Trophy Part 1 comes to an early end with the light fading, and Mark Blundell and Kerry Michael take the win from Mike Whittaker and Mike Jordan. And third should go the way of Andrew Bruce and Tim Harvey.
0: I looked on your Twitter, and it says yes. you, have, you are a, I've written it down, a cerevisophile.
1: Cerevisophile? Yes. How do you pronounce that? Cerevisifile it's somebody who likes beer. So Belgian beer is is one of my big passions. It was something that was introduced to me going back a long, long time with um, initially Chimay as a as a beer. And somebody said, "Here, try this because there was a, a street circuit at Chimay. I think they now use it just for historic racing. And um, I really liked it. And so I drank Chimay and then I explored other Belgian beers and um, it goes Belgian beer followed by German Weiss beer uh, and then IPAs below that but Belgian beer is at the top of the list so yeah that's where that comes from where's your american lager go on that list oh n- no if i've drunk enough Belgian by that stage i don't have to worry about the american no it doesn't doesn't count doesn't count
0: i've been to bruges i've had a lot of Belgian booze it's a very very nice I'd, I'd good isn't it heartily good. agree, I heartily agree. <laughs> so when you're not at a circuit or commentating on some tv broadcast or other
1: what do you get up to Go out running most days, um, I do some writing for Motorsport News, I edit the, the British Racing Drivers Club's quarterly magazine, um, I've been doing some podcasts, we do one called the Lamb and Flag which is a British touring car based one, Matt James uh, Motorsport News editor, a friend of mine and I do that one, um, I've been doing some podcasts for the University of Bolton, it's National Centre for Motorsport Engineering to promote uh, what the university is up to and talking to engineers and students and drivers about that um and just started a series of podcasts for SRO so just a few things then
0: David I could talk to you for hours about your career and about motorsport and about beer as well but uh, <laughs> that's I'm for part gonna, two that is for part two indeed thank you very much for coming on to the podcast my pleasure thank you red a huge thanks to david addison and to you for listening if you want to find out more about david you can follow him on twitter at addison1972 or on instagram David Addison718 or just Google his name. If you've enjoyed this podcast you can always subscribe to it of course. If you didn't like it, don't tell anyone. I've been Bryn Lucas and this has been It's All About Me.